Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. Great to be back on The Switzer Show. Yeah, great to have you back after swanning around Europe. I'm not going to ask you if you had a good time. I know you did. But let's have a look at the show today. We're going to talk to um, um, Charles Tarby. Charles is the founder of Century 21. On a a day when we discovered the uh, auction clearance rate, it started to rebound. It's time to rebound. The doomsday merchants could be wrong. The doomsday merchants could be wrong, Peter. You surely you jest. I, I, I say this with great fear because I am being trolled on Twitter every time I say that. So Charles Tarby up first. Then we're going to talk about investment bonds, which I used to call insurance mm-hmm. bonds. And it's an interesting way of saving tax effectively. And finally, I've got Marty Grunstein. I've done a, a, a personal interview with Marty about what retailers can do to survive this onslaught from the internet, from low wages, all the problems they're bringing retailers under. He's covered some fantastic ways that retailers can get back in the market and competing again. Some good news over the weekend with auction clearance rates up both in Sydney and Melbourne. So the guy to talk to, who's got probably one of the biggest networks of real estate agencies in the country, is Charles Tarby, the founder of Century 21. Charles, thanks for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. Good to hear both from both of you in the new year. Yeah. Now, now mate, you know, all the headlines have been scaring the pants off everybody. Yeah. And I, yeah. I've been continuously trolled on Twitter by saying, well, maybe the house price cuts won't be as bad as 30 or 40%. And people hate me saying it. Charles, this news we got over the weekend, did it surprise you? No, Peter, because look, not, not less than three days ago, uh, and I, it's a report I'm going to keep from UBS about property prices dropping 30, 20 to 30% this year, still to go. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start hoping to challenge these people, and I guess you and I both, yeah. because the auction clearance rates last week were, were really quite respectable, and, and this week they're even more respectable at 61%, uh, over 521 properties. So we're starting to measure against a good number of properties now. Uh, although Melbourne didn't perform anywhere near as well as last year, it was still 54.2. And, and that's, again, not a bad clearance rate because Melbourne is correcting a little bit slower than Sydney. Charles, I'm not a bull on property yet, but I have been saying to a number of my colleagues and people have been saying to me that I, I think the property market's going to be interesting this year. There's going to be some good bargains around and this is the year for buyers to be sort of out there having a uh, you know, a good look around, maybe parting with the cash, maybe not, but certainly starting to stiff because whenever markets are a bit weak, it's an opportunity. Do you think it's sort of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit too gun-ho on this market or do you think it's no, just... No, no, I, I, I think the market has definitely changed, but it's not as bad as people are thinking. And some people are sitting on the fence. Look, if you had millions of dollars, you could do incredibly well fronting up uh, at a developer's house uh, where they have a, a number of properties that haven't sold or haven't been able to settle, and you probably do very well there buying bulk. What you've got to understand is the majority of people who don't have to sell won't sell. They'll just sit and wait. Mm. And, and so the, the bargains don't come out just because somebody 
says it's going to be a 30% drop. It's a reasonable change, a change that we accepted or expected, I'm sorry, and it's happening, but it's not happening at the rapid rate. What was it last year? Uh, they said it was Sydney was going to drop by 20% last year. Well, it didn't do that at all. Mm. And, yeah, and it, if you sit on the fence and wait, you're in trouble. Yeah, and also, Charles, the, the fall, I think, from peak to, to trough so far has been about 12% in Sydney, but last year it was only around 8 or 9%. So it's not what you might call a massive collapse of prices. No. If interest rates go through the roof and other economies crash, we will be in trouble. Yeah. Uh, I think interest rates are very well protected, and, and I just think people need to pay closer attention to, the, to that. What's Do you think there. that's probably been one of the factors that's supporting the market? I mean, three or four months ago, we were all saying the next move up when interest so the next movement interest rates was up. That tone seems to have changed 100% in the market. I'm sure we're following the US lead, but the Reserve Bank governor's also come out and said, well, hang on, he's not so bullish on growth and maybe didn't quite say he's got it wrong, but uh, we're close. Do you think that's also so perhaps just buoying sentiment a little bit? I think they've got it wrong many, many, many more times than they've got it right, Paul. Uh, I I do, as I said, think there was a correction needed. I think prices needed to go back to where they were before. The interest rates dropped during the boom when it was unexpected. If property was was selling for a million dollars then and it's now 1.25, it's probably going to go back to a a price of of one or just over. So I think that's a correction that was needed. And I I honestly think that, and I'm not one to talk the market up, Peter, you know that. Uh, I just think that people are just getting a little bit out of hand. If there's an economic collapse, if interest rates go through the roof, I'll agree on the 20, 30, 40% for sure. Yeah, that's my view that if I was worried about the labour market, and interestingly that Dr. Phil Lowe, who I call Dr. Phil, um, he he actually said last week that, his strong suit is the job market. He thinks unemployment continues to fall, and that made me feel comfortable. And then he said, yeah. I'm worried about external problems, and if that was the case, I would be inclined to cut interest rates. And he said, I'd be happy to cut by half a percent if, if external threats made him do it. And I think yeah. a lot of people have also heard, not only that, that was bigger than news last week, a lot of the chief economists are saying, we're on hold for a couple of years. Now, if, if you're thinking yeah. about buying a house, why wouldn't you go out to auctions or uh, uh, open houses to see if there's some good bargains if interest rates are going to be on hold? You don't get 61% clearance rate in Sydney if the market's crashed. Hmm. Yeah. And I think people need to really look at that. And last week, it was 59.2. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, like it's been two weeks in a row. I know people might want to wait and see, but realistically, Paul, what, what you just said there, Peter, is absolutely correct. I mean, I, I just think there's too many good things in our economy right now to make that happen. I don't think it's up to us. I think it's external. And I know you're not declaring it at the bottom yet, but uh, every buyer wants to know where they should be looking. So on on the spot here, uh, um, where do you think are some uh, interesting areas in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane at the moment? Yeah, we were picking the areas probably four or five months ago, and those areas were certainly Brisbane. Well, uh, Brisbane was predicted a year and a half ago, and, and uh, they had my name in an advertisement, which I asked them to take <laughs> off, so I didn't agree. Uh, and and I, I think Brisbane is now having a really nice time. I think Adelaide's been steady all the way through, but I think you'll notice Perth starting to move, and that's an area where prices are very low. Mining is stable now. It's not just yep. about mining anymore. And you've got a lot of people wanting to move from the United Arab Emirates and South Africa into Perth. And I think mm. that's an area that I'd be watching very closely. And, and finally, elections. Does that make it harder to sell property? Uh, and particularly with Labor coming with some pretty controversial policies, 
Do you think that's like post-election, it'd be a chance for a bit of a takeoff? Between the elections and the Royal Commission and the way in which the banks have changed their linear, even though they'll say to you they started changing it a year ago, uh, that has had quite an impact and elections generally do. People will wait, especially investors, because of the negative gearing issue. Mm. Well, those that are smart will get in and uh, it'll be grandfathered, you see? Mm. Okay. And there's one last question. Until they find something, until they find something else to take yeah. from there. I don't know if you noticed over the weekend, but Labor repeated its desire to, to axe the first home super saver scheme. What do you think of that, mate? Peter, I've not been a big fan of super being used for uh, purchasing your first property. Hmm. Um, I have been a bit nervous about that because if people get it wrong, then they're going to be dependent on the government down the track. So well, I guess I guess I guess it shows how how old you are and how objective you are, mate. Because anyone with thought a real estate agent would be like any reasons for my property. You're a very objective commentator. I'm proud of you, Charles. Mm, God, Peter, I'm and Paul, I'm out. Peter and Paul, look at that. I'm out uh, as, as looking at 18 beautiful parcels of land. Uh, lay people like me call it the golf course. So, <laughs> am I finished? We, we often get that on a Monday, Charles. That's but right. We actually get that when we ring on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, That's or Friday. Right. As well. That's right. Okay, Charles. Yeah, oh, good. Uh, thanks, gentlemen. We appreciate you joining us on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. Well, that was Charles Tarby from Century Twenty One, and Charles quite surprised me, Paul, when he said he wasn't a great fan of the first home. Uh, super saver scheme. I liked it. First home buyer super saver. Well, look, I, I liked it too, Peter. And I think people do confuse it with the idea. Well, I think Charles's reason he didn't really see super as the vehicle for not don't confuse super and saving for a home. And, yeah. and there's some look. There's some. I think there's a point in that. But really, this is just an accelerated way of saving, and it was mm. actually about encouraging people to actually make voluntary contributions through salary sacrifice or other means into super mm. to get a lot higher rate of saving than if they put it in the term deposit. That's right. Because it doesn't affect the compulsory super. It doesn't affect the it's compulsory the super. It's a voluntary super. Mm. And so, uh, look, if I was, uh, you know, talking to a 30-year-old and say, put more money into super, I'd say, you rocks in your head. Get yeah. your home first. Yeah. You know? So I think this was actually designed, encouraging people to, to do that in a way that was a lot, a lot, they gave they actually, their monies grew by about 30% faster than if they put it in a term deposit. And more tax so, effective And as more well. tax effective. So yeah. I actually think it's quite a good scheme. Yeah. A bit of a no-brainer as I've described it for young adults. Yeah. But uh, look, the Labor Party didn't like it. Uh, Why do you think it's the case, Paul? I think there are two reasons. A, it's not their idea. Mm. Uh, and point. B, look, it's a bit of work for the super funds. And yeah. I think there's been a bit of backlash from some of the industry super funds mm. because they've got to pay a guaranteed rate on it. You know, it's a bit of a it's a harder thing to administer. Not much upside for them. Hmm. You know, usual and they would lose that salary sacrifice amount, and they potentially hmm. lose the salary sacrifice that would have stayed there hmm. in the super system till sixty five. Yeah. Now might come out in two or three years. Look, the scheme is a no brainer. If you've got a uh, if you are a young adult listening, or um, you don't have to be young, but uh, yeah, it's the first if you time haven't life. bought your first home, or you've, you're a parent and you've got kids uh, in that category, um, look, it's a no-brainer for saving for your first home. Uh, it's just a different way than using a term deposit to get that 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 gap up. Exactly right. Okay, we'll go to a break now, Paul, and we'll be back in a moment, and we'll be talking about um, something really, really interesting, namely. Life insurance. What are they called? Life. They're insurance bonds, aren't they? But they're different kinds of insurance bonds. Yeah, investment bonds, and look, a, a really product that's got a lot of application for people on high tax rates, or mm. if you want to save for uh, your kids or grandkids. Exactly. Back in a moment. And now a word from our sponsors. 
Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. And remember, we always say that when we talk about 3.89%, that's our advertise or headline rate, but it's the same as our comparison rate because there are no fees or charges between that you'd have to worry about. Other lenders do that, so I'm just advising you to make sure you always ask about the comparison rate. Okay, joining us on the program is Michael Black, who's head of Centuria Life. And Centuria is a company that you know, Paul and I know really well. And one of their, their lesser-known products is the fact that they have these investment bonds. And it's probably a good time, Paul, because a lot of people are looking for alternative kinds of investments, aren't they, and income, particularly with Labor maybe challenging franking credits. Yeah, look, there's certainly some, uh, a lot of focus on alternative types of investments. But investment bonds and insurance bonds, as I'm sure uh, Michael will talk about, they've been around a long time, but I think there's also a bit of a refresh here, and so we're seeing a slightly new product. So it's really good time to, I think, very timely, Peter, to, uh, to really put them on the spot about this product. Yeah, so Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Okay, mate, so just to make it really simple at the beginning, a lot of people wouldn't know, what is an investment bond and how do they work? Okay, that's a great question. Unfortunately, some people think we're a bond, like a government bond that pays regular income, but we've got nothing to do with that whatsoever. Essentially, we're a tax structure where you can invest and you can select a number of different investment options and the fund is taxed at 30%. Uh, and the earnings within that come through for the fund, and, we, and the tax rate is maximum 30%, less any franking. So as opposed to someone who might be on the highest tax bracket paying tax at 47%, they can invest their money in one of these investment bonds, choose their investment options similar to what they do in, say, superannuation, and then they're taxed about that lower earnings, and those earnings compound at that lower tax rate and therefore generate greater returns over a period of time. Now, Michael, these are what are called tax-paid investments. I think most of us are familiar with the idea that when we uh, invest and we get an income, we pay tax. But tax-paid investments, if they're held long enough, there's actually no tax at all for the investor. Is that right? Yeah. It's, if you think of it as buckets, that's what I'd like to look way to describe these things. If I invest my money um, and I'm on the highest tax bracket, I'm paying tax at 47%. If I, tax, if I invest in superannuation, which is a tax-paid investment, the fund gets taxed at 15%. Within the investment bond, they're only getting taxed at 30%, and that's correct. If you stay there for 10 years, you're not paying any more tax. However, if you pull your money without in, without within those 10 years, you only pay the difference between your marginal rate and the 30% tax rate. So if you invest for a year or two or three, you can still get your money, and you're no worse off than if you invested outside of the investment bond and you're paying tax at that higher rate. Uh, Mike, what, what kind of people are... Uh generally interested in using investment bonds? Yeah, look, investment bonds have been around since the mid-80s, and for about 20 years, they didn't attract a whole lot of money. And the reason for that was that superannuation became so flexible. If you think back a couple of years ago, the government was encouraging people to put in a million dollars before 30 June. They were encouraging people to start their superannuation through transition to retirement at 55. However, more recently, the government's put caps on what you can put money into super. They've put caps on your balance. And you've now got to wait till you're 65 to get your money. So all of a sudden, investment bonds, we've got accessibility to your funds at any time. 
and you're being taxed at lower than your marginal rate have become extremely popular. And that's why there's this resurgence in them. So really the people who want to be investing in these things are the people who are earning more than 30%, um, sorry, paying more than 30% in tax. And so they're the people who are over $90,000 income with their marginal tax rates 37%. And also it's very appealing now for people who have capped out on their superannuation or want an alternative to superannuation. Maybe they don't want to wait till they're 65 to kick back or retire. Maybe they want to downsize their role at their work at 55 and they need an alternative long-term savings plan. So they work for people who are paying tax at 47%. They work for people who are paying, uh, effectively got as much as they're ever going to get into super as an alternative to putting money back into super. But they can also work for people investing for their kids or grandkids. Can you just explain that, Michael? Yeah, they're actually the best of both worlds. They're like a managed fund in that you have a daily unit price and you have a selection of investments you can invest in. And we've chosen 22 of the best fund managers in the country to put on our menu. However, they are also a life insurance product. And because of that, they've got a couple of features there. And one of those features is you can nominate as many beneficiaries as you like. So we look at a lot of grandparents who are investing in these things and nominating their beneficiaries. And in the event of passing, the money will go straight to those beneficiaries. It doesn't actually form part of the will, so it's not contestable. So you're guaranteed of that result of the money going through to the investors. Uh, and that's one of the big benefits of these things. The other thing is when you invest in these things, because they are a life insurance product, they give you protection from creditors um, and that they don't form part of your estate. So in the event of a bankruptcy, if you're a on a board or if you're um, in, a, in a small private company, um, you can put your money in here and you get that credit protection as well. I think a lot of people want you to explain the insurance component. So let's imagine I've got $50,000 and I'm age 60 and I've got grandchildren and I, I put the 50000 in on the, on the idea that in 10 years' time, when, it, when they effectively become tax-free uh, in, the, in the hands of the recipient, um, you know, my, my grandchildren could get... You know, how does the life insurance part work in a product like that? Yeah, so look, if you're, the, if you're taking out the policy in your name, mm. then in the event of your passing, the money will go to those nominated beneficiaries. And even if that was 12 months into the investment period, you still get the benefit brought forward from that 10-year period. So if you hold the investment for 10 years, it's tax paid. If you invest the money and the life insured passes away then you also are tax paid. So there's no more tax to pay on that. So that's the other, and the other thing you can do is you can actually nominate a third party to be the life insured. So I could have the investment, I could have my children as my beneficiaries, and I could nominate my great-grandmother who might be 95 as my life insured. And if she passed away, then the 10-year rule would come back to today and the money would be tax paid and would go through to those beneficiaries. Mm. And it can be very efficient for uh, saving for kids uh, and for grandkids, uh, of course, Michael, because if we've got uh, AIDS, you know, putting the tax burden somewhere else because of uh, you know, not wanting to deal with things and also, of course, taxation for minors, people under 16 can get very punitive. There could be a tax rate as high as 66% there. So we tend to forget that, that it's not easy always to uh, uh, invest on a sort of on a sort of set-and-forget basis for our kids and grandchildren. So they're really suitable for that that group. Anyhow, we, we should just go to the uh, Centurion yeah. Life Goals because you've effectively relaunched this product. Um, could you tell us about the sort of changes and what Centurion Life Goals um, now offer? Yeah, look, the key to when I came to this role uh, with Centurion in the last 12 months, and I've, I joined the industry in the late 80s actually working for a friendly society, so I'm back to my roots in some ways. And back in the old days, they had limited investment options, 
the fee structures weren't very transparent. They, high, they paid high commissions to financial planners. Today, they're very transparent, and that's something we've deliberately put time and effort into this new product. So we've now got a wide investment menu of 22 investment options. We've got an index uh, option in each asset class, which is a low-cost index option, and we've chosen to partner with Vanguard. And then in each asset class, such as Australian shares, we've got three options, and one of those will be a growth manager, one of those will be a value manager, one of those will be a quant manager. So we subscribe to industry research and we try to pick the best funds in each asset class and we try to pick complementary investment options. So we've got a world-class lineup of fund managers, be it in property and infrastructure and Australian shares, international shares, or if you just want to go into a balanced or growth fund, you can choose them as well. Mm. Secondly, with the pricing, it's very unbundled and transparent now. So we have a base fee and then the underlying manager fee. So we've really just brought them forward to today's modern world. And we also have online applications, which you can complete an application in about five minutes, which is a lot better than the old days when you had to fill out forms and get to, get at someone to authenticate your driver's licence and that sort of thing. These things can all be done online now, and you can also access any information about your fund online. So we've really just brought them up today, up to date to modern needs. And I guess what you're saying is, because you've got this range of fund managers if someone wants to play a very conservative game over 10 years they can do it or if they want to dial up the risk and try and get big returns they can do that as well yeah one of the great things about these things is you can switch your investment options whenever you like and when you switch you've actually got no cgt because the fund is paying the tax on the way through so how many times have you had an investment that's gone well for you you might have been investing in small companies funds for the last five years or something, and you've been making 25 or 30 percent return. And you're thinking about taking a profit or selling it down, moving some across to cash, or maybe to the ASX 200 or something like that. But you're afraid to do it because of your CGT. You're going to have to pay when you switch. The great thing with these investment bonds, I can go into cash if I think the market's going to fall, and if I think the market's going to have a rise, I can actually invest into a beta shares geared fund if I want to, um, take on some more risk when I make my profits. I can reweight back across to cash or something less more. Consistent conservative and not have to worry about that capital gains tax on the way through. So that's a real strong feature. And we don't have any fees on those switching as well. So that's a good thing as well. And there's one other important rule, Michael, as well. It's called the 125% rule, which means you can add to your investment. Can you just explain that without, and what, that, what impact that has or doesn't have on the 10-year rule? Yeah, essentially, you can invest as much as you like in year one. There's no caps at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then each consecutive year after that, you're allowed to put in 125% of the previous year's investment. And that additional investment is treated as if it was invested day one. So you could be in a scenario where in year 10, 11, 12 even, and you invest that money, and it immediately qualifies for that 10-year tax paid rule, even though you've just put the money in just recently. Mm-hmm. In fact, the average holding, we did some analysis recently, the average holding in these funds for us is just under 14 years. So typically people tend to go in and keep the money there for the long term. Mm-hmm. But uh, that 125% rule is a great way to accumulate your savings. We've actually got an online calculator where people can go in and model some numbers. So we get a lot of people who might be, say, 45, they want a 10-year plan to save till they're 55, to give them some income to live on from 55 to 65 until their super kicks in. So you can run all those sorts of scenarios online with our calculator. Okay, one final question about the Royal Commission. Uh, what impact do you think it's going to have on market, the market and demand for investment bonds? Well, I think people are going to want more transparency. Um, I think we're going to see financial planners moving towards a more independent model, and we're already seeing a lot of planners leaving the big traditional groups and moving out and getting their own licence. I think that's a good thing because I think it's going to create more competition. Uh, what we'd like to see is we'd like to give investors access to the best investment options in a clear, transparent way. And that's what we've tried to do with this product. 
Uh, we think it'll appeal to these planners who are out in the independent space and want to give their clients the best possible access to investments. So we've designed this with that in mind, and uh, the Royal Commission has been pretty traumatic, but there are a lot of very, very good financial planners out there, as you know, Peter. Yeah. But what it has done is brought out some poor industry practices, which um, I think will all be better off in the long run once they're gone. Okay, Michael, if people want to know more, what's the best website to go to? Just go to centurialifegoals.com.au and you'll be able to access the number of strategies online. You'll be able to look at the different investment options and we explain in more detail how the strategies work. Great stuff, mate. Thanks for joining us on the Switzer Show. Thank you very much. And now, a word from our sponsors. And I really want to inform our listeners about an interesting um, series of days coming out. We call them Investment Strategy Days. Uh, and they're, they're, they're actually getting together a whole group of really interesting fund managers with, I think, very, very interesting products. Paul, it's one of our, our best days of the year, isn't it? When it comes well, that's probably our biggest day, Peter, our Investor Strategy Day. And uh, this year, right bang, just before the election, there's so much uh, political uncertainty around not just Australia. We've got Brexit. We've got what President Bush is doing. So Trump. We, <laughs> President Trump is doing. I got that wrong a couple of times, but anyhow, yeah. I, I, I don't. Chris, uh, probably, and we're themed around so much around how you invest uh, in this politically challenging time, which I think is probably the biggest issue facing investors in 2019. Exactly. We, we like in Sydney, we get nearly a thousand people. So Sydney, 30th of April, Melbourne, 7th of May, and Brisbane, 8th of May. Well, we all know retail is struggling at the moment. There's a whole host of reasons out there from fact that wages aren't rising as quickly as they have in the past. You've got all this digital disruption, people selling stuff online and making it really hard for shops. And so I thought I'd go and talk to Australia's premier uh, analyst and giver of great advice to people in retail, and that's Marty Grunstein. Martin, thanks for joining us on the program. Uh, always a pleasure, mate. All right. Now, Marty, you know the, the kinds of problems retailers have got. You get asked to go to various conferences to help people, whether they be retailers or mortgage brokers or financial planners or insurance brokers or anyone, how to actually get more bang from the buck that they're investing in their business. But I do want to focus on retail at this moment. Even just ignoring all the external challenges like the internet and whatever and, and lower wages, what do you reckon that retailers get wrong on a consistent basis and what do they need to fix it up? Okay, I think there's two things they, they massively get wrong and have been for many, many years. One is the, uh, firstly, the price preoccupation of the discount mentality where they offer people no reasons to go into the retail store apart from the discount. You know, big deal, 20 years ago, it was 30% today, it's 60%. And it, it just doesn't cut through. Uh, the other is what happens in the experience when I'm in there. Uh, the customer service levels and the way I am treated you know, is not always uh, the way it should be. And at the end of the day, even though uh, retail is a social shopping experience, if I'm going to be treated poorly and not have a good experience, I might as well get it online. Uh, so on the, on the attracting people to the business, um, I remember, interestingly enough, I was doing a seminar maybe 20 years ago for a national women's retail chain, and I went down to the shopping centre in Melbourne where they were having the conference, and I walked around the shopping centre and there were 300 stores. And the only two stores in the whole shopping centre that gave a non-price reason to enter was one was the body shop back then that talked about what they did to the environment. Mm. And the other was a jeweller that said, we offer free cleaning and polishing for life, which is offered by every jeweller in Australia. Mm. 300 plus stores had either prices and products or sale or 20% or whatever off. 
Ironically, it's the same today uh, you think we would have learned. Ma Marty, why do people go for the price option? I'm kind of thinking to myself, they haven't got any other ideas, so they think, well, people aren't walking in the store. Let's try and give them a price inducement. Uh, what's the better way of the price inducement being the only reason to drag you into the store? Yeah, well, firstly, it, it, it's suicide for bricks and mortar retail unless you're the biggest operator for Harvey Normans or whatever the major in a category to offer that because I can virtually, unless you have an absolutely exclusive product, I can get it cheaper anyway. And I refuse to believe that when women go shopping, they go shopping for $100 dresses or $60 dresses. That's just a load of rubbish. Yeah. Uh, they are wrong in that. What they do by taking the price basis is give people no other reason than educate the consumer to become a price shopper who didn't necessarily want to be one in the first place. There are thousands of alternatives limited by only the retailer's imagination as far as communicating the reasons to, to, to come into the shop. Everything from the, the range of products to it, maybe they support the local community and they do something, they're a good business that gives back a little bit to, to society, to uh, innovations, to guarantees, to, 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 to reasons to come into a retail store apart from 40% and 60%. I think, you know, my favourite one, as I told you, you know, many times over the years when I was working with optometrists, they said, what would you put in a retail store if you were running an optometrist? And I said, I'd put in, thinking of getting married, come in for an eye test. You might, you might change your mind. Uh, these are the things, if you can make people laugh, if you can make people attracted, if you can give people reasons, that's far more effective than 50% off. 60%. Yeah, and, I, and provided the, the ad encourages both men and women to go in, yes. you, you won't be a victim of the movements that Pick on you know, old blokes who had those silly old jokes. But as you say, yeah. it, it works both ways. I guess if the person's so vacuous as to make a decision on who they marry purely on sight, well, that's a, a big chunk of the population and we can't deal with that, Marty. Let's go. Well, well, it is, well Peter, my wife made that decision and she's regretted it. <laughs> you, you, know. you know, you can't, you know, that's the way it is. That's right. All right. So, okay. And as I was listening to you, I, I was thinking to myself, if, if, I owned a frock shop, having a sign like, you will only find these dresses in this store and no other store in Australia. Could be a reason for someone to go in there because a lot of people hate to see what they've bought, just everyone else wearing it. Absolutely. Exclusive product in that area. Mm. One of my bugbears for quite a bit of work I've done in the, you know, in the, in the cafe and coffee industry is if you've ever had a coffee and you're a, a caffeine addict, you know the difference between a coffee made by a barista and someone who's just by a kid who hasn't been trained. Yeah. Yet the only cafe in Australia that advertises that they use uh, fully trained baristas is McDonald's. And that's just ridiculous because there are fantastic baristas out there. And if I'm going through a food court, why doesn't it say we have an award-winning barista, you know, and promote their staff and promote things other than, you know, $5 for a coffee and a cake. Uh, once you get hooked on the product, then it comes down to the service experience as to whether I'll come back. I mean, the stuff to get people into retail once you know, is, mm. is, is stuff to attract them in there. At the end of the day, it's how I'm treated as a human being when I walk in there, whether I'm ignored, whether I'm treated with respect, you know, do, do the people have customer service skills? 
you know, with number one complaint, I hear about places like David Jones and, you know, and, and Myers these days is you can't get anyone to serve you there. Mm. You know, you can walk in there and there's no one there. You walk into an Apple store and there's nerds everywhere. You know, uh, there are people there, they, and Apple understand that you service customers. Now, Apple is the most successful company in the world and David Jones and Myers are struggling at retail. It's about time we learned from the clever businesses and provided a positive experience, even if that is expensive, but provide an experience to generate people coming back again and again and again. Yeah, it's funny, Marty. When I walk into a department store, I still have that feeling, oh, service is not going to be great. And, and they don't seem to work on changing my impression, do they? Yeah, well, you know, here's the secret to it, and this is what a lot of retailers don't understand. It's not exclusive to retail. You stop hiring people on skills and you hire people on attitude. At the end of the day, I'd rather have someone with a good attitude who can be trained in the product than a person who's had 20 years retail experience of disappointing customers and making them feel like crap. Mm. The whole element of this is uh, service is an attitudinal business. The skills can be taught very simply, but there are a lot of unemployed people with a great attitude who should be employed, and there's a lot of employed people with a crappy attitude who should be unemployed. Uh, and as a small business person, you know, or, or even a medium-sized business person, the recruitment should be about the person's attitude. You can train them in the skills. Yeah. M Marty, you've been doing this now for, you know, I guess, three decades, and, and consumer service has been one of your strong suits. Are you finding companies are as, in, are as enthusiastic and committed to helping their, their staff to be good at consumer, uh, customer service, or is there becoming a bit of a blasé attitude to it? Uh, I'm a uh, professional cynic from, as I say, 30 years' experience in the industry. I don't think customer service is any better now than it was 30 years ago, and I don't think most businesses have the right attitude into making the investment in their staff. You will see companies who are multi-million dollar companies who will not pay a few grand to train their staff in the skills that they need to provide quality service. Or even worse, sometimes they will pay the money, but the management does not have the attitude that's reinforced by their staff, so it's all wasted anyway, because when the staff see the managers are not doing the same sort of stuff that they're asking them to do, well, the, the, the staff fall out. The most basic law, and this is what's not understood on Australian customer service, is to give up the need to be right. You know, give up the need to be right for the greater good of the client relationship. If I'm going in for an experience and a lot of customers are wrong and stupid and they have no idea what they're talking about, but they're the ones who are providing the money for the business, if you prove them wrong, you know, even if the customer is wrong, they'll run away rather than give them rather run away rather than do business with you. But if you have the skills to make the person feel important, whether they're right or wrong, and create an atmosphere where they feel validated and, and have their needs understood, you will get business coming back again and again. Yeah, now, Marty, do you think the core of the problem of retailers finding it hard is that the leaders or the business owners or the managers of, of retail outlets aren't doing enough as leaders to give great examples examples to their staff. And I know you, you have told me a couple of times a story that you experienced in a fruit shop in your local area when the, when the guy started giving you lessons on how you should you know um, approach the fruit. Please share that with us. Okay. Well, this was a situation I was deciding where I buy my fruit shopping, moved into a new house, and I went in. And I know things about fruit. Not everyone knows. I know that, you know, if a, if a, a pineapple's ripe, you pull one of the things out and it comes up. Or if, a, if you're buying delicious apples, the stripier ones are more crunchy than the ones with the dots. So I'm choosing the fruit, and it says choice apples. And the guy watches me and said, they're all the same, mate. 
that actually are not all the same and, you know, can have whatever ones want. So I'm happily buying fruit. Mm. About 30 seconds later, with another half a dozen people in the fruit shop, he says loud enough for everybody in the shop to hear, mate, I told you before, the apples are all the same. Yeah. So I took them out of the bag, I put them back on the display, and I said, if they're all the same, I'll buy them down the road. Now, uh, you know, the, the joke is people who are finicky about fruit pay more of it and don't care what they pay for it. They buy more of it and don't care what they pay for it. He lost my sale, and I tell the joke in the seminar, and it's a true story. Five years ago, it was a great pleasure. I saw the guy go broke, and if you ask him why he went broke, I'll bet he says, oh, I couldn't compete on price with supermarkets and other fruit mm. stores. He was crushing the egos of his customers. And if you crush your ego, I will take revenge upon you by taking my business elsewhere and destroying you on social media. Yeah. Marty, do you also think that a lot of people don't even realise the strengths that they've got in their business? And as and as you said earlier, they then don't actually advertise you know, on, their, on their window, for example, or in their marketing um, um, messages what's really good about them. And, I, and I, you once brought up a story about your wife, and it was a fruit shop story again, about deliveries. Do you remember that, that story? That uh, yeah, 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 no, I do remember. This was back in the old days, but, you know, before the internet, my wife, uh, after our first child was born, was in the market for home-delivered shopping for the first time. Yeah, that's right. Now, back at the time, the, the trouble with home-delivered shopping is one, the supermarket charged you for it, and one, they delivered when it suited them and not when it suited us. So my wife went into the little IGA supermarket, closer to where we live, and she said to the guy behind the counter, hey, do you guys do home delivery? And the guy goes, yep. He goes, how much is that? And she said, it's a free service. He goes, well, when do you deliver? She goes, the guy goes, well, whenever it's convenient for you. And my wife said, gee, well, why don't you put that in the window? Yeah. Now, how much is this guy losing by providing a value-added service that customers want? And he doesn't tell them about it. And I see that everywhere in retail today. And it's not unique to retail, obviously. But you see that everywhere in retail. There are a lot of things that retailers are doing to add value, but they don't communicate it at point of purchase. They don't even communicate it on their websites. And then they wonder why the consumer is shopping them on price against other people. You know, mm. The worst thing I find in, in the small business, independent retail versus the big guys, they think the only way to respond to the big boy who drops his price, and remember, a lot of big boys can afford to run at a loss, small business can't, is to, I have to take my prices down to compete. Mm. No, that's right. You don't fight fire with fire. You fight fire with water. What you've got to show is advantages in other areas, a service, an experience advantage product benefit advantages, value added that you provide, whether you know, free delivery or repairs or whatever it happens to be. But if you don't communicate these to me at point of purchase, why would I come into your store and not go to the person who's cheaper down the road? Okay, over the years, I've done conferences with you and we've, we've talked to people who run landscaping organisations and mortgage brokers, financial planners and whatever. Here's my question to you. Uh, and I've got my I've got my answer, and you better agree with me. But maybe you won't. <laughs> but it's, it just seems to me, Marty, that people who have real challenges in their businesses, and let's just concentrate on retail, because I, I do want to rescue retail in this country. It exactly. seems to me that what they keep on doing is what they're, I guess, good at is selling when someone wants to come in and buy something from them. But it seems to me they don't put a lot of work into reading about what successful retailers are doing, you know, what are the, the best techniques to train your staff. It seems to me they don't put themselves through courses, even if it's just going online, going to websites like yours or websites like mine, and learn from people who are doing it really well. In your experience, do you find many people are actually training themselves to get better at where they're weak? 
No, I, I, I do agree. I think this is one of the greatest areas of shame in our local business area is that we don't. And the interesting thing, there are so many wonderful examples. When I was talking about this 25 years ago, I said, well, why would you why would you go and do everything yourself when McDonald's have trained their staff for you? Why don't you pinch people who work at McDonald's? Because <laughs> exactly. basically back in the 70s and 80s, well, they were fantastic training, do you yeah. know? Yeah. And I'm saying now, goodness me, if you look in an Apple store, I tell you what, shopping at Apple is an experience. I dropped six grand buying information for, you know, computers for my kids a few years ago, and I just sat there and I thought it was one of the best experiences watching this 20-year-old kid, as good a salesperson, as I said, who made my kids feel important and didn't make me feel like an idiot. And I tell you what, why we wouldn't just have the same sort of mentality. And Apple training is not unique. It's just, you know, basic understanding of how consumers make decisions. Mm. But the trouble is they invest in the frontline staff. And my criticism, I reckon a lot of businesses, they, they don't care about their weakest link. My perception as a retailer when I walk into a place is the whole retailer's perception is based on who serves me. I don't care if that's a casual or the yep. boss. That's my whole perception of the brand or the image. Yep. And I think a lot of times people will say, oh, we're trying to full-time staff, but there's no point training the part-time staff or the casuals. Well, they're the ones who are influencing purchase decisions. I went into a pizza place at Bondi Beach many years ago. I was on a Tuesday night and I said to the kid behind the counter, hey, this place is pretty full. I know I'm picking up a takeaway, but, you know, this is a really good night out. He said, mate, you should have been there yesterday. We had slices. We were busy from 7 to 11. And I said to the staff member, I said, gee, uh, I hope you're on commission uh, for this, doing so well. He said, you know what? I get paid the same whether it's uh, full or empty. I'm happy when the place is empty. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? That's the staff's perception of the business. And I'm going, uh, gee, I wonder if the boss knows that. <laughs> you know, yeah, these are the things that are going on. And I urge people, just get off your ass and have a look at this. I either say I don't care about service. If you say you do care about service and you want to increase your profitability, mm. get off your ass and do something. You know, And actually, are you investing in the frontline people? Are you putting things in your window or on your website to give people reasons to come to you apart from price? And if you're not doing these things, Bloody yeah. Now, one last thing before you go, I want you to share that story about the 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 Kansas um, country uh, barber <laughs> okay. because that was a classic example. This is a cla- of a guy who thought outside the square when he had a challenge to his business. So, share it with my uh, listeners. <laughs> With pleasure. I was doing work in the hairdressing industry many years ago and I heard the story of a, a small uh, country hairdresser who had a monopoly on the market. For the first time ever in his life, a, a competitor opened directly down the street with a big sign in his window saying $6 haircuts. Now, the initial guy was charging 25 bucks for haircuts at the time and making a fortune. Now, he thought to himself, gee, if I, uh, if I keep my price at $25, I'm going to lose a lot of my customers for these $6 haircuts and I may not get them back. But if I drop my price to $6, I can drive this guy out of business, but I'll go broke myself. I can't take 19 bucks off my margin. What this guy did that was successful, that everyone in retail can learn from, was instead of dropping his price, he kept his price at $25, and he put a big sign on his own window that said, we fix $6 haircuts. <laughs> and, 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 that's, and you know what? Fixing $6 haircuts can be a staff member who is interested in listening to my needs rather than someone who isn't, yep. or, or, or giving me a reason and telling me about the value added. But why do we have to wait until our customers have $6 haircuts before we fix them? Why don't we prevent $6 haircuts? Yeah, exactly, Marty. Thanks for joining us. Now, if people want to read your stuff, what website do they yep. go to? Uh, just go to martingrunstein.com.au. There's video and articles. Everything's free of charge. 
Okay, mate. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, mate. That was Marty Grunstein, one of the best when it comes to sales and customer service. Well, Paul, that's the show for today. It's great having you back on deck. The Switzer show is never the same without you. And uh, we look forward to um, locking horns next week. And we next week. And we should invite people to send their questions in. because I, I haven't been encouraging people to do that while you're away. Yeah, send your question, questions to uh, switzer.com.au. We'll try to answer them. And uh, Peter will be back at the same time next week. Exactly. Thanks for joining us all. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>